We'll be in the book of 1 Timothy this morning, the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Uh, this being one of three what's been dubbed pastoral epistles. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're just here for pastors. Yeah. If that was the case, God would have had a different book written just for pastors. Uh, but it, it does give a lot of instruction for the church. It gives instruction as far as, as, far as the, uh, how the government, per se, of the church is to, is to be, how it's to be run, how it's to be constructed. Uh, it gives a lot, a lot of information as far as that goes. There's a lot of practical application as well, uh, in general, for all Christians alike, not just for pastors, not just for deacons, not just for men. I've actually heard it said that First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus uh, should only be read by men. Folks, I, I strongly disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, strongly disagree with that. If that was the case, then uh, once again, uh, those instructions would have been given in Scripture. But this, this book from Genesis to Revelation is for all men and all, all women everywhere. And we can, we can all glean things from it. Uh, uh, again, this being one of the pastoral uh, epistles that Paul wrote, uh, we'll begin at verse 1 in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And we'll stop right there for just a moment. As, uh, Paul introducing himself here, uh, which is uh, the general way that Paul wrote most of his letters. That's the general way that most everyone back in this time would begin a letter with, uh, with who was writing it and then to whom the letter was written. So Paul says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. This is something that Paul spent a lot of his time and a lot of his ministry, a lot of his uh, uh, missionary time doing was uh, uh, defending his apostleship because uh, uh, many of the people that he preached to if you recall you go through the book of acts when paul went into a city where was the first place paul would go he would go to a synagogue he would go to the local jewish assembly uh, that's all people that gathered at synagogues was jews and proselyte jews maybe some gentiles that had been proselytized into the into the jewish faith but it was Jews that gathered at the synagogues for worship and for the reading of the Torah, the reading of the law. And this was normally the first place that Paul would go when he entered into a city. And these people knew who Paul was. They knew who Saul of Tarsus was. They knew that he was a Pharisee. And they knew that he now preached this Jesus, uh, that he would go to the synagogues persuading them and, uh, and disputing them, as the book of Acts says. Uh, uh, in the ways of God and in the ways of the kingdom of God and the ways of Christ and of Christianity. Paul would go to these places. So Paul spent a lot of time defending the apostleship that Jesus Christ himself gave unto Paul. Uh, uh, not only here, he defends it in the book of, of Galatians. He defends it uh, uh, in many of his writings. Uh, he, has, he has to defend 
the apostleship and the, the commission that he had to go forth and to preach the gospel. But he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Amen. Savior. He says, man didn't put me in this position. Amen. Man didn't commission me to go preach. God Almighty himself is who put me in this position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, and the Lord Jesus Christ uh, uh, did this as well. He says, which is our hope. So he's telling Timothy here, God Almighty is the one that put me in this position. But you don't forget that God is our only hope. Amen. Christ is our only hope. And folks, he, what a hope he is. Right. What a hope Jesus Christ is. And this is something that Paul uh, uh, continues to put forth to Timothy in different ways in not only 1 Timothy but in 2 Timothy as well that Christ is the only hope that this world has. Christ is the only hope that any saved person has and Amen. he's the only hope that any lost person has. Amen. He is all hope. And we, have, and we find that hope described in different ways in the scripture. It's a lively hope. It's a blessed Amen. hope as Paul wrote to Titus. It's described in many different ways throughout the scripture but nevertheless he is the only hope that we have Amen. and Paul makes that plain to Timothy he says unto Timothy mine own son in the faith now this doesn't mean that Paul begat Timothy uh, he's saying my own son in the faith uh, leading me to believe that more than more than likely Paul was the very one that led Timothy to Jesus Christ, uh, probably on his first missionary journey into, into Lystra, or Lystra, however you'd rather uh, phrase that. If you read the book of Act, uh, Acts chapter 16, you'll see where Paul goes to Lystra. And he goes there, and uh, uh, he sees, uh, and you read the, uh, about it in 2 Timothy as well, how Timothy's mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, uh, they they were uh, they were converted more and more than likely during Paul's first missionary journey to that area, and if Paul did not lead uh, Timothy to Jesus Christ, then it would have been Eunice and Lois, his mother and grandmother, that would have done it. But it would have been because of the message of the gospel that Paul came to that area, to that city, and preached when he visited Lystra and Iconium and that region. But he says, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So grace, mercy, and peace, this wasn't an uncommon thing for Paul to say. However, in most of his letters that he would write to, to churches and or individuals, it was grace and peace. Mercy is only inserted here with Timothy, and it's also inserted in the book of Titus. He includes the word mercy in those two. Why was that? Well, once again, these are pastoral epistles. And uh, I think uh, Paul was emphasizing on that because he was writing to pastors or potential pastors. He was writing really to churches. These letters would have been read to the churches that these men were affiliated with that we're speaking of now. Timothy being affiliated with the church at Ephesus. And we'll see that here shortly. Uh, but uh, he, he adds the word, uh, he, he says, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And I just think that's, 
that's kind of peculiar that he adds that mercy in, whereas grace and peace is normally how he would begin his letters to just the churches, but to these individual men, he adds the word mercy in. Verse 3 says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other, no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. So he says, he besought Timothy to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And like y'all have heard me say several times since Missy and I have been coming here, God is very good through the Holy Spirit. And these men that were writing to not only show us the what, but to show us the why. And uh, here he says that he, he, he besought Timothy to stay at Ephesus. Uh, and he gives us the why. That thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now folks, doctrine is something that is very important. And the church, uh, not only in this time, 2,000 years ago, but the modern day church has taken doctrine and put it on the back burner. And they, they've replaced it with other things. They've replaced doctrine with entertainment. Yeah. They've replaced doctrine with love. They've replaced doctrine with all kinds of things, folks. It has got to begin with good, sound doctrine. Right. It has got to begin with this book being taught and being preached in truth and in love. But it, it's got to begin with this book. And it's got to begin with good doctrine from this book. Not just taking one verse here and another verse there and creating a doctrine. You take a verse and you go through the entirety of Scripture to see how that verse applies. You take one word from the Scripture and you go through the entirety of this book, all 66 books of it, and see what the context normally surrounding that word is before you ever come up with a doctrine concerning that word. Otherwise, you can come up with some bad stuff. You read through the book of Ecclesiastes. You be careful reading through that book because you can justify sin real easily taking a verse out of context through the book of Ecclesiastes. You can justify all kinds of sin by taking it out of the context that it is. You don't ever read the book of Ecclesiastes without uh, taking the last few verses of that book into consideration where Solomon says, this is the end of the matter. This is, this is it. This is, the, this is the whole duty of man. Amen. To serve God and to obey his commandments. That's the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. So you be careful reading that stuff. You be careful reading Proverbs. Because you can justify sin if you take those verses individually and don't look at the rest of the book or the rest of the Bible. Or the rest of the doctrine of the Bible. Folks, doctrine... Uh, Doctrine matters. It matters it matters very much. I listen to a man on YouTube sometimes, sometimes with a grain of salt, but I do listen to the man. He's a hardcore IFB preacher, and that's fine, independent fundamental Baptist. But that's one of his taglines is doctrine matters, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. Like I said, the church has taken doctrine and set it to the side. Some churches have completely thrown it out the window. And they've replaced it with things. One of the things they've replaced it with is love. Now, folks, we are to love. 
That's, that's the greatest commandment according to Scripture, according to the words of Jesus Christ himself. The first greatest being to love God. The second greatest being to love thy neighbor. We are to love. Amen. But if true, sound doctrine is taught and preached, then Christian love will be the natural byproduct of that doctrine. Amen. It has got to begin with doctrine. And, he, and Paul charges Timothy here. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't make a recommendation. He charges him. He, he tells him. He commands Timothy. He says that thou. He, he tells him to charge others. Uh, let me rephrase. That thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. What is the doctrine that he's talking about? The doctrine that Paul preached there. The doctrine that Paul introduced uh, to Timothy and Eunice and Lois. The, the doctrine that Paul uh, preached and and talk to the different regions on his missionary journeys. What is that doctrine? It's the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection. It's the life of Jesus Christ. It's the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's the truth of this scripture. If you don't think doctrine matters, let me put it to you this way. We all believe in Jesus in here, right? Amen. The Muslims believe in Jesus. The Jews believe in Jesus. Doctrine determines what Jesus you believe in. Do you believe in the Muslim Jesus? That he was just a great man. He was a great man. He taught some good things, but he was not the son of God. Do you believe in the Jewish Jesus? He was a great rabbi. He knew the law well, but he was not the son of God. He was not the promised Messiah. Or do you believe in the Jesus of this book? Doctrine determines that. That's how important doctrine is. That's how important it is. Otherwise, you get taken away with all kinds of weird things. And Paul gets into that here in just a second. Talking about the fable. Talking about genealogies. And things along those lines, folks. Doctrine matters. Period. So, whenever you hear a preacher or a teacher... Bring up doctrine. And, and Paul brings it up several times to Timothy in these two letters. Brings up doctrine. Sound doctrine. What doctrine should be taught. What doctrine is. He brings these things up. Doctrine matters. Period. So when you hear a preacher or a teacher talk about doctrine, don't shove it to the side. Doctrine is important. Doctrine determines which Jesus you believe in. Doctrine determines uh, uh, what kind of resurrection you believe in. There are different resurrections out there that people believe in. But doctrine Amen. matters. It matters. Right. And if it doesn't coincide, if the doctrine you believe doesn't coincide with what those say at the Word of God, you've got a strange doctrine. Amen. You've got a strange doctrine. <clears throat> He's telling Timothy to charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Now, he tells Timothy that he's to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And he's telling, them all, he's telling Timothy also to charge them to not give heed. A lot of people read this as a warning to Timothy. Timothy was sound in the faith. 
You read about that in Acts 16. Uh, Paul was, was evidently very impressed with, with Timothy's Christian character in Acts 16. That's when he decided, hey, I'm just going to take him up and take him with me on my, on my journeys here. I'm going to take him with me to these regions. He'll add to what I'm trying to do. He'll add to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. But he says, charge them to teach no other doctrine, nor to give heed to fables and endless, endless genealogies. What fables and what endless genealogies? Well, folks, this could have went both ways. The Jews are big into fables, and they're huge into genealogies. They were in this time, they still are. Trying to trace their, their ancestry, plumb back to Abraham, which really isn't too hard to do, especially for Jewish people. But, they, uh, they're big on such things. But not only, not only was he talking about the Jews here, he would have also been talking about the Gentiles. The Gentiles were big on fables too. You read in Acts chapter 19, this same region that we're talking about here, the same city of Ephesus. You read in Acts chapter 19 where uh, uh, the, the town clerk of that area he says, hey, we worship the great goddess Diana here. That's a fable. That has nothing yeah. to do with genealogy, but that's a fable. That's a myth. That's a legend. But it's not true. Diana wasn't. Hermes wasn't. Zeus wasn't. None of, the, none of these gods. Apollos wasn't. Apollos the god. Apollo, uh, there was also an Apollos the person in Scripture. But... None, none of these gods were true. They were all fables. They were right. things that were made up by man. They had a god for everything. They had a god of the wind, a god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the earth, a god of the rain, a god of the ocean, a god of the underworld. They had gods for everything. These were fables. But the Jews were just as big on their fables. If you've ever uh, uh, read into Jewish history and studied uh, Jewish culture, the Judaistic religion, uh, you're bound to have run into a book called the Talmud. The Talmud is full of Jewish fables. Full of Jewish fables. And a lot of those fables are still held on to today. And they were in the days of Paul. So he's telling Timothy to charge these people. Don't you pay attention. Don't take heed to these fables and these genealogies. And he but he, uh, once again, he tells them the why. And he gives them the why which minister questions rather than godly edifying. Because these fables and these genealogies, they, they, they minister questions instead of edifying. What was the purpose of the church? There's really two purposes of the church. We're to glorify God. First and foremost, we're to glorify God. But we're to edify one another church members, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to edify. We're to exhort one another. We're to help each other. We're to lift one another up. And in doing that, we glorify God. Amen. What did Jesus tell the disciples? He said, the whole world will know that you're mine because of what? Because you love one another. Because you love one another. John wrote in 1 John, you shall know you have passed from death unto life because you love the brethren. That is a byproduct, as I said, of good doctrine. 
It cannot begin with that love. It's got to begin with good doctrine. It's got to begin with good Bible preaching and good Bible teaching. And then love will naturally come. The love of, love of God and the Christian love that we read about in the scripture will naturally come. But he says, <coughs> excuse me, neither give heed to fables in, and in, endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edify, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved to turn aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. We'll stop right there. Verse 5, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. Folks, that's, that's a huge statement. That's an enormous statement. What is the commandment? That's the law. That's the law. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. The end, the end of the commandment, the end of the law, is these things that he lists here. But he lists charity first as charity out of a pure heart. How does he get that? What's, what's the law? Now, judging from this list of sins that he gets, uh, gets to here in just a couple more verses, He's talking about the, the Ten Commandments given in Exodus chapter 20. But he says the end of the commandment is law, or, or is love, is charity. Folks, that's an enormous statement. The end of, of just a, have no other gods before me, the end of that is love. The end of thou shalt not steal is love. End of thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not make any graven image. The end of all these things is love. How so? Because if we're not doing those things as Christians now, as Christians, because listen, there's all kinds of lost folks out there. There's all kinds of lost folks that say, well, I don't make any graven image. I don't steal. I don't lie. I've never killed anyone. I love my neighbor. But folks, they're still in bondage. Without Jesus Christ, they're still in bondage. And, they, and a lot of them think that they're all right with God because they don't do those things. And the reason they think that is because the church has convinced them of that. You quit sinning. You quit drinking. You quit going out to the bars. You quit doing this and doing that. And God will be fine with you. Folks, that ain't what the scripture says. You come to Jesus for peace. You come to Jesus for rest. You come to Jesus for prosperity. No, folks. If you're lost, you come to Jesus because you're a dirty, rotten, good-for-nothing, low-down, stinking sinner, and you need a Savior. That's why a lost person comes to Jesus. But they're convinced they're convinced that they can come to Jesus for these other things. No, those other things are after we're saved. We come to Jesus for peace after we're saved. We come to him for, for, uh, for hope after we're saved. But we come to him because we're sinners in need of salvation, 
to begin with. Everything else will fall in line afterward. Everything else will fall in line afterward. The end of the commandment, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. If we do these things as Christians, if we do the commandments, we obey the commandments as best as we can. Ain't none of us can do it perfectly. Whether we're lost or saved, we can't do it perfectly. Only one could do that. And that's who I'm dependent on to get me to heaven. Because I was unable to do it. The end, of the, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned. Out of a good conscience, out of a pure heart first, out of a good conscience. Folks, if my conscience bears witness against me, I'm in trouble. Something's gone wrong. Something's wrong with my walk. I ain't saying that I'm unsaved. But if my conscience is testifying against me, that's more than likely the Holy Spirit of God being as I'm a born-again believer. That's Him showing me I've done something that I need to repent of. And if I repent, I should have a good conscience. I ain't saying, you know, well, I'm going to do this. I'll repent of it later. Oh, so that's not the attitude of a saved person. The attitude of the saved person is, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't even be thinking about that. There's a lot of people out there who say, well, I'll, I'll just do it and ask forgiveness later. That's, that's a bad attitude to have. That's not a good conscience to have either. And a faith unfeigned. What is faith unfeigned? something is unfeigned, that means that it's not fake. It's not hypocritical. If we feign something, that means we're faking it. First time the word feign is used is when David goes into Gath. He's fleeing from Saul. And he goes into Gath, into the city of Achish. He goes there to the king and says that he feigned madness. He feigned madness. It says that he Wobbled at the walls, and he let the says he let the spittle run out on his beard. He drooled on himself. He was faking madness. He feigned it. So if he was feigning madness, then if he was feigning something, then and it meant that he was faking it. Then unfeigned means it's unfaked. It's genuine. It's not hypocritical. Hypocritical. Uh, so the end of the commandment is. Charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Faith that isn't faked. From which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling. It's a funny term. Vain jangling. It basically just means they're babbling. They're babbling about nothing. And I hear a lot of preachers do that. I hear a lot of teachers do that. And I hate to say that. But I do. They go on and on and on about things that don't matter. I couldn't tell you how many funerals I've been to that not one ounce of the gospel was preached by the preacher. And folks, that's a prime time to preach the gospel. That is a prime time to tell people, you're a sinner, but Christ is a Savior. But they'll get up and they'll preach the deceased that is laying there in a casket. 
instead of preaching a risen Savior that defeated death hell and the grave. What they're doing is vain jangling. They're just babbling. And I understand funerals. Yes, the deceased should be brought up. Yes, the family should be comforted. But if it is a true minister of the Word of God that is in the pulpit or behind the podium or wherever it's at, at the graveside, it doesn't matter. The gospel needs to be preached. The gospel should be brought up, not vain jingling, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside and the vain jingling. Folks, this tells me that at one time these people were teaching somewhat sound doctrine. He says, but they've swerved from that. They've gone a different direction. They took a 180 turn. They turned to the left or the right. They haven't stayed on the straight and narrow. They've swerved, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. He says these people are desiring to teach something that they don't even understand. These people want to teach about the law, and they don't even get the law. They don't understand that the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience. They don't understand this. They just want to go on and on. They want to go on about their fables. They want to go on about their endless genealogies. They want to go on about a law that they don't even understand. And Paul is saying, telling Timothy, you keep in mind, Paul is telling Timothy to charge these people with this. Charge these people. You don't need to be teaching these things. I've, I've spent too many, too much time in too many churches and too many meetings with men that didn't preach the gospel. With men that just got up and spoke about their day or their week. Well, there ain't nobody going to get saved from a tale about my life. Nobody. You know what's going to save them? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what needs to be preached. This book needs to be preached. Now, can I incorporate something about my life into that? Of course I can. But that don't need to be the sermon. Nor the lesson. That's vain jangling. A lot of people, I think, do that because they don't understand the scripture that they've read, if they've even read it. They say, they'll read John 3.16 and then talk about how God brought a thought to their mind by a butterfly flying through the front yard. I've heard, I've heard men preach like that. you got to be careful with that. Must be careful with that. Desiring to be teachers of the law. We've got to be careful with our desire to teach. Folks, it's a humbling thing to stand before you and teach. It's a humbling thing for any man to get behind the pulpit and to present the Word of God or to stand on the floor as I do when I teach and present the Word of God. It's humbling. It's fearful. James says, My brethren, be ye not many masters, knowing this, that we shall receive the greater condemnation. He's talking about teachers when he says that in James chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, we shall receive the greater condemnation. And these people that go on with their vain janglings, they go on with their endless genealogies and their fables, like Paul's telling Timothy about here. Those people have to account for that. They have to account for it, the ones that did it here, 
and they'll have to account for it if they do it in 2022. The Bible has not changed, and God Almighty hasn't changed. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Praise God. Now, you might read that, and you might say, what's good about the law? My goodness, it just condemns us. Folks, that's what's good about it. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, if it weren't for the law, he would have never known what sin was. If it weren't for the law, he would have had nothing to drive him to Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that Jesus Christ stopped him on the road to Damascus. I understand the bright light that shone on Paul, and I understand his conversion. I get that. But nevertheless, the law is what showed Paul and what shows you and what shows me that we are sinners. People think that Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments is just a rule book that God give us. No, God give us that showing us how holy he is. Showing us how righteous he is because only God could keep that law. You and I were unable to do it. It's not a rule book. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 3? The law was a schoolmaster. But praise God, once grace and once truth and once Christ came in on the scene, the schoolmaster was no longer needed. Once we're saved, hey, we're no longer under the law, but we are under grace at that point. Paul told the church at Rome, Christ is the end of the law under righteousness. He's the end of the law under righteousness. In other words, you can't keep the law to be saved. Christ is the way to be saved and the only way to be saved. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners and for unholy and profane and for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, there's that word doctrine again, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. That's a big list of dirty, filthy, rotten, black, nasty sins that he had. And if you read them and you look at them, they're given in pairs. But it pretty much makes up the Ten Commandments that he started with in verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. The only one that he doesn't really list here is covetous, which is the tenth commandment. But he says, he goes through all this list. And then he says, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, folks, that tells me this is not an exhaustive list that he gives. It isn't this and nothing else. It's anything that goes against your conscience. If you have to ask the preacher, is this a sin? If I do it, chances are it's a sin. If you have to inquire whether you should be doing it or not doing it, chances are it's a sin. Chances are. I ain't going to say 100% of the time, but I will say probably 98% of the time. If it's contrary to sound doctrine, if it's contrary to sound doctrine, he says, if there be any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, not just a gospel, folks. It's a glorious gospel. And Paul makes that plain to Timothy. That according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. This is Paul not only telling about the glorious gospel, 
about the gloriousness of the gospel, but he's also defending his apostleship once again. It was committed to my trust. It was committed by who? By Christ himself. He says, these things that he listed, Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, for the disobedient. You go through all those sins, he says, according to the gospel, Amen. according to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here he says that the law wasn't made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, for the disobedient. For those that were irreverent to God, those that were rebellious toward God, the law was made for the sinner, man. We've already covered that. That without the law, we've never known that we were sinners. God writes the law on our consciousness. He writes it on our heart. We know right from wrong. We know we shouldn't go out and steal. We know that we shouldn't commit adultery. We know that we shouldn't kill. We know these things because it's on our conscience. God makes it plain to us. He makes it plain to everyone. But the moral law wasn't made for the righteous. It was made for the ungodly. And that was every one of us. It was every one of us. It was made for us that we would see that we needed a Savior. 